0: So I was thrilled to have Brad Thomas on the show this week. If you're not already tracking who Brad Thomas is, uh, he had a wildly accomplished career in the Army. He was in 3rd Ranger Battalion. He uh, fought in the Battle of Mogadishu. He was part of Ranger Recon Detachment. He ultimately ended up in Delta Force for the last 12 years of his career. And then, because that clearly wasn't enough, he- founded the rock band silence and light with uh as it turned out um coincidentally with other veterans it i was not aware he did not intend for it to be a veteran only band but apparently uh that just happened to be the case uh so i had a great time talking with him such an interesting dude with so many interesting life experiences and perspectives on things um I think what thrilled me the most. It's funny. I was kind of buzzing after the episode and trying to figure out why I was uh, so jazzed to have talked to him. And I think it's because um, you know he's a couple, just a couple years older than me, and a lot. And he was kind of doing things in the army early in the '90s that I was reading about in high school. That was first kind of turning me on to the military, and the fact that he was the guy actually out there doing those things while I was in high school, being influenced by them. Uh, was kind of thrilling to me. Also, the fact that a lot of his musical influences from that time were similar to my musical influences uh, was really cool. And to see how he's been able to leverage that interest over the years and sustain it, even with a high op tempo in the military, and then be able to kind of cash in on it, as it were, after his military career ended, I think is just super cool. He's also, I I should say, written some, great pieces on Havoc Journal about uh, his time in the military and, um, and getting out of the military as well, which uh, are, I find to be really fascinating. So for all those reasons, I was super stoked to talk to him and uh, it, it, I just couldn't have had a better time if not for his phone. I'm sure we could have talked for at least an hour more, but silence and lights new album will be dropping at the end of summer. Hopefully he will come back on the show and we'll pick up the conversation and and uh, continue more then. Until then, if you don't already know Brad Thomas or you don't know Silence and Light, I'm thrilled to be able to introduce them to you. This is the Savage Wonder of Brad Thomas. All right. We're live with Brad Thomas. Brad, what's up, man? What's going on, Chris? How are you? I'm great. Where are you? Are you... It, it, did I see like Instagram post that you were in Brooklyn recently? Is that where you are now? Or what's your story?
1: I'm uh, in Long Island right now. Okay. And kind of split my time between Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina and uh, Long Island. Are you a Long Islander? originally no originally like grew up dc area maryland suburban dc area and yeah kind of after the military was excited to get out of the south where i didn't find there to be a whole ton of culture and uh kind of got culture overload here in new york so now I've got the the Southern Sanctuary where I can <laughs> get away from it if I need to.
0: Your fortress of solitude to escape all the all the yeah. overdose of culture. Yeah. So, what, so well, let me start with this because um, first off, I'm trying to contain myself because I'm really excited to have you on. Um, and the big reason I think, as I was like, why am I why am I so jazzed that Brad's coming on the show? And I think what it is is. And if this doesn't weird you out, I'm going to read you back to you um, that I read your piece on Havoc Journal a while back. And I just want to read this one section because this one thing, uh, I don't know, I could relate to it, um, nowhere near to the degree that you wrote it, but I thought it resonated a lot. You wrote in October, 2010, after I turned in my badge, the badge that gave me access to the place beyond the fence for 12 years and drove down All-American Freeway, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, my rearview mirror. I was overcome with emotions. One main thought kept running through my mind. I can't believe that I'm still here, that I'm still in one piece, that I'm still alive. Underneath my sunglasses, the tears rolled down my cheeks as I thought back to the afternoon of October 3rd, 1993. And then you get, obviously, into some of the many stories and adventures that you went on. That piece... um, that really resonated with me and the fact that you leveraged all those experiences artistically, I was like, dude, this is the encapsulation of Savage Wonder and what we want to celebrate. And um, so that you were always on my target list. I was always like, oh man, I'd love to get him on the show and I'd love to be able to talk through that because I think there's a lot um, for vets now to look at and learn from About how to leverage their wartime experiences. Do you get that feedback a lot when you're out and about? Do people come up to you and say, Hey man, because of you or because of silence and light, I started thinking about uh, maybe that latent artistic talent that I had back in grade school or high school. Maybe I should go back to that or try to rediscover that.
1: Yeah. I've had a fair amount of that, Uh, a fair amount of what should I do next? A fair Mm -hmm. amount of you know, your music really speaks to me or hey, the story you told really speaks to me. I've had I've had a ton of that. And that was, I guess, unintended consequence of, you know, kind of starting this whole thing. You know, it, it wasn't really um, my intention to be like a public person or to be, a, quote, you know, famous dude or anything like that. Um, the only reason I really put myself out there and started putting some of my resume via pictures on social media was because I wanted people to know that I'm legit. Like there's no, you know, there's no, well, what was he? Was he an SF guy? Did did he do this? Where You know, I didn't want any of that to be a question. Just you look at it, you see it, you know, I'm a legit dude. I've done a bunch of legit stuff. I've lived through the dark times and You know, dealt with it in a healthy, positive, and creative way. And so I wanted to be an example to guys that might be struggling, guys or gals that might be struggling, whatever it might be, whether they're a veteran, whether they're a first responder, whether they're a trauma nurse, whether, you know, whatever it might be. So if I can do it based on the stuff that I've lived through, then I can pretty much guarantee anybody can do it if they put their mind to it. That's that's why I'm doing what I'm doing.
0: So it seems strange that that was the evolution because am I mistaken? Or are you really the public face of silence and light? Like the other guys really don't like, I mean, Jason's had a, a bunch of articles written about him and also, cause you know, he's got an interesting story himself, but, um, a, a couple are still on active duty. And so you're kind of like shouldering the burden, aren't you? Of kind of like being the public face of silence and light
1: yeah definitely. you know, and even that wasn't an intended consequence that was so originally, the concept was you know, there were five band members. Each band member would have their kind of talking point or charitable organization that they, if they did media when they did media, they would be able to talk about and say, you know, hey, a hundred percent of our music royalties are going towards these charitable organizations. And it turned into, okay, I got invited on a podcast and I get invited on something else. Then there's an article being written. Then Black Rifle Coffee does something. And so it just kind of grew from there. And yeah, I definitely ended up as the face of it, not because the other guys aren't willing or able. It just seems to fall on my lap and I'm, I'm happy to do so. I mean, I am the, it's, it's my baby. I, I cook up the idea and the concept along with Jason and you know, it's kind of gone from there. He's just a, he's a super quiet person. He doesn't do a ton of, ton well, of stuff.
0: A hundred percent. And to be clear, I mean, I'd love to talk to each one of you guys in the band. Um, Cause it, it's, I just think there's, I just think it's an awesome story and an awesome example for so, for so many people, but um, how has that been for you? Because now it's what you've been out for 12 years ish. And how do you feel? Do you walk down the street and do you still think of yourself as a soldier? Or do you think of yourself as a musician? Or do you think of yourself as a civilian trying to adjust to a new reality? Like where, where's your head at most days?
1: I think, you know, I was fortunate in my transition out of the service that I was kind of already doing that before i had even fully left. And, you know, one of the things I can say that was you know it helped me be successful in transition was not fully identifying as the thing that i did so i may have not been god's gift to delta force commando you know but i was a good father a musician a friend you know all of these other things not just a delta force operator and you know i've i've seen guys that would walk into anything that are that are God's gift to commando and they're an abject failure in every other aspect of their life so you know for me it's it's about being well-rounded and kind of having a diverse you know background of interests and hobbies and maybe you play golf and you're gonna go play charitable golf or whatever it is you know but I always felt like I was more than that um, second to that, I never wanted Mogadishu specifically um, to be something that defined me, mm. you know. And mm. I, it's almost like saying, like, I'm really a nobody in 2022, but back in '93, I was somebody. And right. I don't, I don't right. like that. Right. I, I am more excited today about what I'm doing today than I am about talking about 1993. You know. That's that's not my passion right now. That's not what I'm doing. It's a part of who I am. It's a part of what makes Brad Brad, but you know, that's definitely not me today. So So it's it's interesting.
0: I was um you touched on a bunch of things I want to dive deeper into. One of them is something that it's a hypothesis of mine. I'm not totally sold on it, but I want to bounce it off you. Um when we talk in the veteran community about being a veteran. My issue with it is that veteran is an inherently backward looking term. It's about what you did, but it doesn't talk about what you're doing going forward. And as a result, that can, I think, that can sometimes be an anchor on people because it doesn't allow you to break free from that, change bad habits if there are bad habits to be changed, or leverage that experience in a positive, meaningful way. It doesn't prohibit that necessarily. Plenty of people have done it, but there is, I feel like because it's backwards looking, it's hard sometimes to move forward am I crazy? Uh, Again, I'm thinking out loud a little when I say that, but does that kind of resonate at all with what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I I can 100% identify with that. And that's, that's kind of what I'm saying is, you know, to me, my best days are ahead, not behind me. And, you know, by saying, Oh, I did this or I, you know, I don't know. I've always been more excited about what I'm doing now than <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Than what I did yesterday, because it's really a way of just saying I'm not really anybody today. I'm not as good as I was, you know, right back in '93. Yeah, through, I back then. Know. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, it's done. Fun- It's funny. I was so I was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday, and uh, for reasons that I, I won't totally get into now, uh, Somalia came up, and I was like, um, I was like, oh, I was like, hey, tomorrow I'm talking to Brad Thomas. And I was like, you know, he was at Moog and all that. And he was like, Brad Thomas is like, oh yeah. He's like, I was like, remember those silence and light? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, what's up with that guy? He's like, he looks so young. He's like, how, how could how can he do all that? And like put in a 20 year career. And I was like, I know it's like, it is weird. I was like, he looks not just young, but you look superficially undamaged. Like you don't look, <laughs> I was like, I was like, you know, I know so many Marines that did like one contract in Helmand and they're just like, God damn. They're just like, you know, it's rough. They're in rough shape. And I'm like, how the fuck did he do twenty years? And his and his like, l- like I'd walk by you in Brooklyn, and it'd be like, oh yeah, there's yeah, typical hipster music dude. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, and so, do you think that your mindset, the fact that you didn't kind of invest in the identity of being an operator, invest in the identity of, uh, you know, your past? Do you think that kind of in a, some kind of psychological holistic way kind of freed you a little bit to go? yeah, I'm not carrying that weight around with me as much.
1: Well, I think there are two parts to that. One is the psychological piece and the other is the physical piece. And the physical piece generally, um, unless it's letting yourself go and being completely overweight and not eating right and staying healthy in terms of that, um, there's not a whole lot we can do about our physical appearance or whether you turn gray or, you know, Those, those types of things. So I'm, I'm fortunate genetically to be a person that just hasn't aged much. I don't really have wrinkles, you know, I can start to see the age of my face and things like that. I turn 53 next month Wow! and, uh, you know, have a thick head of hair and all that that's genetic. I can't help that. What I can help is eating clean. Like I love junk food. I love garbage food. And so I eat clean when I can, so that I can eat shitty when I want. And so I don't feel badly about, you know, eating half a pizza and, you know, chowing down on chips and cheese and crackers and nachos and stuff like that. Um, Also, the the alcohol is just tons and tons of calories. So I found that, you know, I'll drink once a week. Sometimes more like in Vegas, I was drinking every night, but I'll go two weeks without consuming alcohol, and I've yeah. never been a person that like comes home and just drinks a couple of beers. I'm either all in <laughs> you know, like once a week, <laughs> yeah or or I'm not even touching it, so um, the second part to that is the mental piece, and that is you know, I think exactly what we were kind of talking about before, having something that you're looking forward to. You know, something that you're yeah, yeah. continuing to do if it's giving back, you know, and, and then the third piece of that is fortunately, I, I never really got banged up. I never really, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of parachute jumps, both static line and military free fall, never really, you know, damaged myself too badly. I've had a couple of knee things, a couple of little elbow things, but, uh, you know, don't have a purple heart. That's an award that you can keep. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate that way. So to compare myself with somebody who's been banged up, you know, it, it's not even a fair thing.
0: It's so it, that's funny because that adds kind of a whole other layer to when you said you were leaving brag and kind of going, holy crap, I made it and I'm in one piece. That really is remarkable. I mean, because as you say, I mean, you hit every major conflict in the past what 30 years, you know 20 years yeah. that we've had and and uh, 20 years of your career and um and came out relatively unscathed i mean that that's uh that would be a an incredibly cathartic moment an incredibly um i could see that either being an empowering moment or an overwhelming moment for somebody and i'm just trying to empathize and put myself there it, but i i would i would feel overwhelmed like god i'm so freaking grateful
1: you know i think I think there's also a sense of disbelief, not that um, you know, it's kind of like wow, I'm already here. Like I, f- I feel like it's been the blink of an eye, huh. and and all of a sudden it's like wow, I'm, I'm here. It's over, and holy smokes, like I, I didn't expect to be here so quickly and in one piece, and you know, kind of intact mentally and uh, physically. So you know, there was a bit of a surprise to that. So about here's a little uh a little uh, not not trivia but something that i'd like to touch on we were talking about the physical appearance and things like that i was a person and i'm still not like i don't wax this i don't have much body hair etc um i still didn't have hair under my arms when i was a 19 year old kid and I was so self-conscious about that. You know, like all my friends would be at the pool and be like, look, you know, and that wasn't me. So the, those guys that aged at 14 and look like grown men, that was not me. And uh, so so maybe I. Yeah, you, know, you overcompensated. Or something. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, yeah, how, how much was that responsible for all the life choices you ended up making? Were you like, all right, sons of bitches, I'll prove it. I'll prove <laughs> I, oh, I'm a man. There we go. Going yeah. right
1: back, going, you know, doing the whole nine yards. Yeah, never. it was never like teasing <laughs> or grief, but it was just one of those things where, like I said, it's, you know, and you see that all the time with people that have different things or different hangups yeah. or whatever it might be. It's like, it all goes back to something, you know? So. I guess, man, there's
0: so many directions. I want to go with this. Um, Let me start with this, the music piece. When did that start for you? Um, Was that, did it start before the patriotism before the inherent need to prove yourself that must've propelled you through everything you did or was music kind of the
1: first love in your life? Um, Music was definitely the first love and you know, from the time I was, uh, two, probably two years old, I was making up songs and singing songs. And, you know, my dad would be like that
0: asshole in the
1: Buick. And I'd be, you know, the guy in the Buick and making up songs about it. And, uh, a lot of which my family, like when we're together now, they'll still, remind me of different songs and they still remember them. But anyway, um, (laughs) super musically inclined as a little kid. And I remember probably spending the first money that I ever got on 45s and albums and things like that, probably starting at like four or five years of age and really, you know, had an older sister. So I'd get drugged to the record store, you know, or my mother would take my sister to the record store and, uh, you know, ended up buying a 45 or two kind of, kind of thing, very young. And who, who were you buying at four or five? Uh, the first one that I can remem- remember buying was uh, Elton John and Barry Manilow. So, so you never yeah. really left that track. You've you've stayed with that music pretty much your whole <laughs> yeah, life, right? Much, yeah, yeah. Pretty much, Barry Manilow <laughs> is uh, you know my idol, and you, you really life.
0: you haven't ticked the lounge
1: singer part of your career yet. Yeah, <laughs> no, you no, still no, need to get there. No, but there's yeah. still hope. Like that <laughs> is. Hope. I'll do that at like 65, 65 yeah. to 70. I'll start the lounge singer part. Um, yeah, that guy, insanely talented. And most people don't know this, but a lot of the jingles that we know and still hear to this day were written by that guy. Mm. Yeah. Um, Dr. Pepper, uh, like a good neighbor's day right. is there. That's written by Barry Manilow. And so he he worked in the, uh, I forget the name of the building, but they had all these jingle writers that worked in this building in manhattan and he was one of those guys and just started writing songs and god you know came out as an entertainer and and uh, and crushed it but so had this affinity for music from a young age and then my parents exposed me to live music at also a very young age and as soon as i saw that i was kind of like that's what i want to do and um they ended up they bought a piano you know with the caveat that I would take lessons. And, you know, I did that for a number of years and then started in the school band, then started playing saxophone and was playing school band and my church orchestra. And about that time, uh, ACDC Back in Black came out, 1980. And, I'm you know, balls deep in the saxophone and other stuff. And it's like, you can't play that on a saxophone And we had an acoustic guitar, an old beat up, like three quarter size acoustic guitar in my house. And uh, it probably didn't have all the strings. And I picked it up and just started plinking on it. And because my ear had been trained, Mm -hmm. I could kind of teach myself how to, you know, play little parts of songs and things like that. And it kind of progressed from there.
0: So what's interesting to me is that you started, I mean, when you talk about Barry, Barry Manilow and Elton John, you're really getting influenced by vocalists but you didn't become a vocalist. So did you make that choice early on that you are like, Hey, I kind of like these more technical aspects of actually playing an instrument. Or did you try your hand at being a vocalist and
1: go, yeah, that's not for me. I was in the choir in the church choir also, and probably chorus, you know, in school. So I was like fully immersed in band, pep band, chorus, choir, okay. orchestra, like all of that stuff. And uh, took, took lessons from a guy that was in like Navy marching band and did all the coaching for them and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, it was a huge part of my life. And it just got to a point where, okay, you can't play Rush on a saxophone. You can't play Van Halen. You can't play ACDC and all that kind of stuff that I initially got into. Um, it's just not the right instrument for it. I like, I, I can sing okay. Mm-hmm. I cannot for the life of me, do this and and this oh, at the same time. Yeah, I cannot do it. As simple as it is, my hands just start doing what my mouth is doing, and That's, I can do wow. I can do this all day. Like, right, right, pat, right, pat, right. Pat your head, rub your stomach. I can do that, but uh, I can kind of play the drums and hold down a beat on the drums, which involves you know a couple of hands right. doing different things and feet doing different things, but singing playing does not happen
0: so even even background vocals even if the if it if you don't have to carry the, the song it's,
1: it's tough if it's something really? like um if you think about man in the box there's yeah. a whole the whole chorus jerry cantrell is singing the the kind of long noted and then lane comes in and punctuates that you know right. can you sew them sh-? you know that type of thing um i can do some of that but it's tough
0: that's crazy so and that's especially crazy considering what you were doing in the military where you kind of had to be able to I don't know what the right word is psycho your psychomotor skills had to be really good but but that that multitasking doesn't translate into the musical realm that's just no nope. crazy to me wow
1: right. I, I'm it may be something where I if I practiced enough I could get to that point but I just I don't want to focus on that. I've always been like king of the riff, you know, a Sabbath riff, a Van Halen riff. Uh, and, and in that regard too, not, not really a pyrotechnic guy. Like I mm. can play the majority of eruption, things like that. But that doesn't mean that that's what I want to play in a song that I write because gotcha. not every song needs that, you know, it's, it's kind of like all based on my playing is very much based on whatever the song needs.
0: Let's talk about how you and Jason, I, I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I, I feel yeah. like um, there's so much, there's so much ground I want to cover and I want to make sure I, I hit all the sweet spots. that I really am curious about how do you and Jason split the guitar duties? How, how does that, is it organic that he just naturally gravitates towards one piece and you gravitate towards another, or is it a conscious decision? How much planning goes into that? How does
1: that all come together for you? Um, so I, I write all the music and, you know, kind of the mechanics of the song, you know, how many times the verse feels normal to play before we go into a bridge and mm-hmm. then go into a chorus and the chorus outro or whatever it might be. I, I do all that. Fred does 99% of the lyrics and I just wow. kind of help. I help kind of guide him in the right direction. Like to me, this is what this song is about other songs. He's, you know, 110% of, of the lyrics and vocal melody and everything else. So we'll kind of, that's probably the toughest part of everything. I mean, it's one thing to cook up a cool guitar riff. It's another thing to like turn it into a song that has like a hook to it. And you want to hear this part again and again, um, when it comes to Jason, Jason's, not, and he'll be the first to say this, so I'm not sliding him in any way, shape or form. He's not really a composer. And he's more about, let me tweak little parts here and there mm. and add a little bit of flavor. And interestingly, like I when i'm when I'm writing something or I'm working on something, generally, what I'll do is I'll use my little setup here and I'll record guitar stuff, and then I'll play some guitar stuff over it. So not only do I have, uh, you know, the basic guitar track, I've all also got like a second guitar track that I'm, you know, thinking is in the wheelhouse and Jason never comes at it from the same place that I come at it. It's always from a different angle and he will do something and we'll be like, yeah, that's it. That's and it, generally it's live. Like when we're just rehearsing, doing whatever, and he'll start plinking with something and it's like, that's it. That's the thing. That sounds great
0: so because you guys are all it seems like geographically very separate how often do you guys get together when you're
1: that dispersed across the United States uh it it depends so you know four of us are kind of more located east coast mid-atlantic kind of area so it's not too difficult um so much can be accomplished nowadays electronically wow. and so I can take i'll I'll write a couple of riffs and kind of put together, you know, three quarters of a song just in terms of guitar and how it kind of flows. And I'll send that to Tyson and he's kind of like the first line, you know, yeah, I like it too, or it's, eh." and I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those. So I'll send, I'll send stuff out. And if it's something that, you know, he's digging on too, chances are, you know, okay. There's something that sounds pretty cool. We'll take that into a rehearsal session and we'll work on it. And sometimes it comes naturally. Sometimes it doesn't. And we'll put about an hour into trying to make something work. And because of the lack of time that we have together, if it's not working, we're just on to the next thing. Nobody's like, we've got to play this song. I wrote it about my ninth grade girlfriend. I really, you know, there's none of that. It's kind of like, all right, cool. Let's let's shelve it, and maybe we'll come back to it at some point, and you know, let's just go from there. So,
0: and are these virtual rehearsals when you're talking about doing rehearsals, or are these no, not we, in
1: person? We get, yeah, we get together. We've got okay. a couple of different locations that we get together. Um, one of them is a full blown studio in in uh, North Carolina, and that's kind of our favorite place to to get together. And great space. It's in the middle of the woods. Like oh, you awesome. never know it was there. Um, and then, you know, we've got the nightlife of Raleigh and stuff like that right Right. nearby. So that's, that's kind of our number one spot.
0: Did you ever want to do that? Uh, which, which album was it? Was it, um, hemispheres, rush hemispheres when they like isolated in the woods and like lost their minds and they're just like riffing and their musicianship just went like off the charts and, you know, like didn't come out for
1: like three months or something like that. No, no temptation to do that. No. Um, there is, there's a. Some of the new albums I'm looking at, I've got a a roster of sorts over on the wall. And basically we went from uh this is a longer story, so I'm gonna try and tell it as quickly as I can. But due to COVID, we basically got forced to not be able to record and get together and stuff like that. It just seemed like someone was getting sick, um, producer was sick, we couldn't get into this, you know, it's just one thing after another. Yeah. We had an entire album written. I had about an entire album written the same year as we dropped the first album. So COVID kind of hit. Holy crap. And, and wow. it delayed, it delayed the whole process. The first time that we were able to all kind of get back together, start polishing up on stuff. I came in with a new song and everybody was like, dude, this is money. Like this is better than all of the, you know, other album that we've kind of got together. Yeah. Um, The issue with it was it didn't really stylistically fit with a lot of the other music. So I was like, we've got two options. One is this becomes album three, this new song, and that's kind of the direction we go, or I just keep working on stuff that's more stylistically similar to this new song. And that's what we elected to do. So we spent the majority of last summer and uh, early fall, kind of getting together and piecing together all this, kind of what would be album three, Holy even though it's, even though it's the second album, um, and and there are songs like Fred, the singer, might be yeah. super into that were in that bunch of older songs, and I'm like, I just I don't want to go backwards. I feel like if I do that, I'm going back to where I was in 2020. 2021, and and that's not where I'm at right now. So, similar to talking about you know, let's talk <laughs> about Mogadishu. It, it's kind of the same way because the two albums came from two completely different places mentally.
0: The first one, it seems to me, is very clearly a veterans' album. I think any vet can relate to. A number of songs a number of tracks on there is the second one does the second one kind of wet itself thematically to that or are the themes even different
1: um the themes are a little different I don't think it's as so I don't want to say uh, different because it's all very much in the same wheelhouse okay um I can tell you that the first album Kind of the way it went down. And and I don't think that you can ever look at a, a body of work and be like, oh yeah, that's the best thing ever. I love it. You know,
0: right you, right. you
1: hear all the things that you wish you could have done better or differently. And okay, so the way the first album rolled out, um, we had a ton of material together. It was me, Tyson the bass player, and Brandon the drummer. And we had no singer. And, you know, Jason was involved, but Jason's like, a maybe I'll fly in. Maybe I won't kind of, you know, totally fine. Yeah, Yeah. Producer hits me up. Multi Grammy award winning veteran producer hits me up through social media and says, yo, I want to be involved and help out. I'll produce the album. So he had a date that he could work with because of his schedule. And we basically had to complete the album by this date, even though we didn't wow. have a singer. And kind of drug this thing across the finish line. So there were actually 12 songs. And because we didn't have enough time to kind of finish all the songs before going to the studio, we didn't have you know, just days and days to flush those out in the studio. So we would get something kind of the rough mix down and be like, man, it just doesn't fit with the rest of the material. I like the song, but it just doesn't jive with these kind of six or seven other, you know, main body of work. And so that's, that's how it ended up being what it was. Um, I think the themes were not meant to be necessarily veteran in nature, but I think there was some, You know, some of the negativity and negative experiences kind of spilling out. Like the song, Look After Me, I told Fred, this is a song that I want it to be about all the guys that I never had a chance to say goodbye to. You know, that's one of the things that I want to be able to accomplish. And man, he nailed it. I mean, between the music and the vocal and the vocal content and everything else, it's a deep song. Um, That's probably one of the most, proud of how that song turned out. I mean, it really is incredible. So oh, it's a great track.
0: Yeah. It, and I've heard, and I heard the uh, acoustic version as well. And man, it holds up acoustic or with the full band, just yeah. a great track. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I'm sure people are probably, if they haven't already read the countless articles that have been written about you guys or seen the stuff on Jason on coffee or die or any of that stuff, they're probably like, okay, can we get some context? So I feel like I've been negligent and haven't really set the table well enough for them to fully appreciate this. Can you just talk about how the band came together? Where did you meet Brad and Tyson? How did Frank come on board? Like how, how, what was the actual, uh, genesis
1: of the band? So right when you said Jason's name, he texted me. So it popped up on the, on my screen. So, really, this kind of started with um, me and my wife talking about, you know, hey, what can I do? How can I contribute? What can I do to make, I don't know, the world better, the veteran community better? Um, I just felt like the number of people that I had, you know, friends that I had that were struggling. And I knew that I didn't want to ask people for money. You (laughs) know, I don't want to, like, hey, I'm starting a foundation. (laughs) I don't have any money, but give me your money and I'm going to do this great thing with it. And I'm not putting that down.
0: None taken. No, no. Yeah. It's,
1: (laughs) it's, it's just not me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and anytime you start involving money with stuff, it just gets weird and it gets complicated. So, you know, it took a good while for me to kind of figure it out. And My wife one time came into the music room that I'm in here in the house. And she was like, man, it's a shame that you're not using that stuff for something. Like, yes, I play all the time, but it just kind of, you know, collected dust and it it should be used properly. So the next day I was driving into Manhattan and uh, to meet up with Jason and we were going to go see Mastodon together. And um, I think he was like roommates with Bill Kelleher from Mastodon at some point. Or another, and and we had some backstage access and whatnot. So anyway, I'm driving in and all of a sudden it was like light bulb. Um I'm gonna put together a band or a music project of some type. I don't know what it looks like right now, but I wanna take the royalties from streams and sales and contribute those to charitable organizations that I believe in that are doing good stuff for veterans and first responders. And so that was kind of the genesis of the idea. Um,
0: and can I just right pause on, for one second, Brad? Yeah. Sorry. Let, let me, cause I want to make sure people are tracking that what we, cause I think we've both referenced Jason and why that he's kind of a pivotal piece in this. And for those that aren't aware I mean, Jason was the original guitarist for Nirvana went on to Soundgarden, went on to mind funk um, Personally, at some point, if I ever get him on the show, I'll tell him that um, uh, was it Louder Than Live, that, that Soundgarden uh, uh, LP that came out and um, Mindfunk were actually very influential. And I think I saw him in 91 if he was still in the band. I can't remember if he was when Mindfunk played the New music seminar in New York City. And I went to that show and Mindfunk was actually sort of influential for me personally, which was just kind of cool. But I say all that to say in case people are going what the hell's the deal with Jason why is this important that you were talking to Jason sure. did you uh, but i also read i think did you and Jason weren't in ranger Bat together were you or were you, or you weren't in the same we weren't in the you same you were in third right cuz he was in second yeah yeah okay yeah we
1: weren't in the same group but you know kind of when he showed up because people knew my history playing music and you know was still playing guitar in the barracks and stuff like that um as soon as he showed up in second ranger battalion you know word spread like wildfire like there was a guy that was in vana and Soundgarden. i'm like yeah sure and you know there was no internet to access back then so it's not like like let me go to the library and pull up an encyclopedia and you know so yeah. anyway you know who knew if it was for real and uh you know over the years you would hear more and I had we had a bunch of mutual friends that were like, you guys need to get together, and just timing of stuff didn't work out. But I think it was like 2010 when we actually first kind of like met. Met. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you were really out at that point. Yeah, it was you guys like met. either either just about to you know be mm-hmm. out or completely out. I can't okay. remember, but sometime so this was still a new, in 2010.
0: So, so it was kind of a new friendship when you guys went to the Mastodon show still.
1: yeah, Seven years into those lines.
0: Okay. All right. So not that new. Okay. All right. Turn up. Sorry. So not to interrupt. So yeah, go ahead.
1: No. So that's kind of where it came from. And before the Mastodon show, um, you know, we were having some cocktails at the bar beforehand and it was kind of like, look, man, I want to do this thing. I know you've been out of the music business for a long time and there's probably some damage, you know, from that. And I totally respect if this is something you don't want to do, but, uh, you know, would you consider being a part of this thing? And it was kind of like, hell yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's really kind of where it started. Within a couple of days, I started the social media page and for all intents and purposes kind of started to put myself out there as, yo, this is what I did. This is what mm. I'm trying to do. And it just started to grow organically, you know, to the point that Tyson, the bass player, who's a former Marsoc guy, hit me up and was like, "Yo, I just separated from the uh, from the Marine Corps, and like, I don't know what you got going on, but I want to be a part of it." And then it was producer, then it was drummer, then it was you know, kind of the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. So it really grew organically with people that were to do this. And wow. you know, that's kind of, that's kind of morphed over the last year or so a little bit, but um, yeah, it's, it was, it was cool to see it just kind of happen naturally.
0: Yeah. And um, I mean, banned by Facebook, right. I mean, it's like, you, you kind of like social media did what it's actually supposed to do and actually brought like minds together and allowed you yep. to, you know, kind of did the job. What, um, what was your criteria for selecting band members? Did they have to be soft? Did they have to be military? Or was it like, I don't care. I just want you to be a good musician.
1: I I originally, there was no intent for anybody other than me. um, And then Jason to be, you know, the veteran face of the band or anything else. I don't think there's a requirement that your bass player has to be a veteran to be able to do these things. You know, look at Gary Sinise. Yeah, right. And uh, the Gary Sinise band—it's like you yeah. know—it doesn't matter. You know, it's more about the mission statement and what you're intending to do. But it, it grew that way, and you know, so now I get, you know, people will say, "Oh, this is a soft band." Like, right. no, no no, right. no, 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 no. It's not all that, and that's not its intent. Uh, as of right now, everybody that's in the band is uh, either a member of the service or has been in the service. Uh, to include our new drummer Justin, who was in the Navy, so now Not we've kind of we've kind of got all the services represented, <laughs> which was completely unintentional. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a that's a happy accident. Um, yeah, talk about just how the process has been for you guys, and I guess this is also my confusion. Um, I desperately wanted to be in a band in high school, and nobody would play with me, and I was a bassist. And that was pretty much the beginning and end of my music career. So I never really got around to understanding how do you put the music and lyrics together? You know, if Fred is off writing lyrics and you're off writing music and then you guys got to come and bring it together, what's that process like? Does he, does the music influence the lyrics? Does the lyrics influence the music? Who takes priority? How does everything get shoehorned? So it fits like, what has that process been like?
1: Um, So the way we do it and we try and, I guess for me, what works is the most streamlined way of going about that. I send out the guitar riffs and if it's something that Tyson, he likes, then we'll kind of take it to the next level. And I'll put, you know, kind of the way I see the whole song, the layout and format and all of that together. Fred can listen to that and kind of come up with some melody ideas. And generally speaking, we don't really put any lyrics or too much thought into it until we're together. because when you, when you hear it at volume and these amps are kicking you in the chest, you know, and the drums are thumping, yeah, and yeah. all of that stuff. like when you feel the power, it brings different stuff out. So we'll we'll kind of, you know, everybody knows and is familiar with the song. But you know, I don't expect anybody to come in and know it note for note and play along. We just kind of, you know, hey, let's work on this section. This is kind of what I'm thinking. And he'll just start saying words, not even you know applying an actual thought to like what the lyrics are. He'll just start with some sort of like melody, and we'll we'll give it the thumbs up or thumbs down, <laughs> and it, it kind of goes from there. And um, you know, it's it's kind of easy to. To listen to a song, and if it's a dark song, not write happy lyrics. Right. You right. know? And yeah. so I, I don't feel like our music is a downer, but there's definitely a dark side to it. And I've always, I guess, been drawn more into that type of thing. Like I'll pick Alice in Chains over, in terms of my own playing style, I would pick them over uh, Van Halen singing about partying and banging chicks and driving fast cars, right? Like I just, I like the depth of it. I like the power of the depth and then the power of the music on top of that. I think that's like a win-win.
0: How important is it that Fred's lyrics match that idea? Because obviously you, if the music is going to be more Alice in Chainsy than Van Halen, let's say, um, you know, Fred may or may not be there you know, he's his own person. He goes, well, hey, it hit me this way. And not to say it would probably be a 180 where it's like, I see girls in bikinis on the beach where you're seeing like dead bodies. But, but if it's, but, you know, it still can be, uh, you know, without being that extreme, he might be more, he just might have a difference of opinion. How do you guys adjudicate that? How does that get decided? Um, has that ever come up? Well, how,
1: just what what what's that marriage like? Um, so I, I can give you two examples. Um, One is Look After Me. As an example, Um, he came with those lyrics kind of written, and he wrote them not from his own perspective, but he wrote them from a perspective of how he envisions we look at that situation.
0: Who's we? You and Uh, everybody else? People
1: people that have lived through traumatic events in terms of combat experiences or things along those lines. So... You know Fred has been deployed and he's been in locations. His job was not that one of you know uh, go out and assault targets and right. do that kind of or or see a lot of that kind of stuff. And you know so he's writing it from a perspective as he's seen other people kind of dealing with the aftermath of you know traumatic combat events or things along you know those lines. So that's one example. second example is on this new album. we've got a tune and it's going to change title. I generally apply like an adjective as the title or Mm -hmm. something that kind of, Mm -hmm. and the song is called purple. And I called it purple because I um, wrote it on this purple Mustang guitar that I've got a purple sparkle Mustang. And that's why I called it that he, he wrote lyrics that were very juvenile and kind of happy go lucky and it was ended up being called like Purple Dinosaur, and it was like, ab- absolutely not, nope. V- v- veto powers are authorized, absolutely not. And so he took some of this fun-loving. He was it was really a story about. And I'm not going to go into the details of the story about what Purple Dinosaur was, but it was it was kind of like you can use some of the elements of that, you know. But to call it that is just kind of a disservice to the song because. I I wanted the song to be called, check this out, Space Needles. And I wanted it to be Mm. kind of a shout out to the Space Needle in Seattle and this grunge scene that, Uh, oh, by the way, the needles have taken so many lives of you know, that scene. So that was kind of the holy crap. That was kind of the thought behind the song. And uh, it got turned into Purple Dinosaur. And I was like, "No, we're not going Purple Dinosaur." So
0: it. you didn't want to do like a Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, where it's like superficially <laughs> very playful, but actually has a deeper subcurrent. There was no yeah, potential it for that. Just,
1: it kind of turned into what it turned into, and it's the playful. It's still a playful song, uh-huh. and that's that's what's kind of cool about it. And it it's interesting because it wasn't written to be kind of Green Day ish, but it definitely has a kind of Green Day punk angst you know, playful yeah. kind of vibe to it. So it's, uh, you know, wh- where something starts and where something finishes are two different places, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Who do you find yourself listening to now? Or like, do you find yourself listening to music now and going, uh, you know, like something's inspiring you or you're seeing something new and you're like, oh yeah, that's cool. Or are you still mining stuff that you're like, Hey, there's some quality that, Used to get brought out when I listened to this album back in the day, and I want to find that. You know, and you're still kind of mining through your library of
1: material in your head. Um, let's see. I've been super into '90s music recently, uh-huh. and not even the 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 Soundgarden, Nirvana, Mind Funk. Uh, you know, Stone Temple Pilots. Not even really that. More like um, Nazi Star. You know, uh yeah. just stuff stuff from kind of out of left field um I'm trying to think uh Groove's in the ha yeah, oh yeah yeah you yeah, know yeah. just stuff like that So this album is 100 um where it came from and a lot of the trips that I've been doing down to Fort Benning it comes from this place of like this was the soundtrack. Of our lives during this really challenging time, God. which was all things early '90s, and so there's this kind of uncertainty. Like, am I still going to be here tomorrow? Like, will I make it through this next you know yeah. week of training? And uh, yeah. hands down, was the most challenging time of my life, physically, mentally, and everything. And uh, so that's that's kind of where it comes from. So there's there are a lot of elements to things. That were happening musically back then, it is definitely not a rip on uh any of the bands aforementioned. Right, uh, right, right. I don't think oh, sure. I don't think anything you'd be like, oh, that sounds just like this, or it right, doesn't, right. that's not the intent. It's kind of just the overall feel of the music back then and how different it was versus today versus the 80s versus the you know sixties sure. or whatever. But that's
0: also a really unique take on it because um talking about your experiences in the nineties and juxtaposing that with this kind of more lighthearted. Um, I don't want to say, like you said, I don't want to slam them by I, this is not a slur to say that there may be more frivolous music, but carefree music maybe mm-hmm. is a way to uh, pose it. But to juxtapose that with what you were going through, I think is a really interesting take. And I know i I saw this, I think on your Instagram feed, but can you talk a little bit about, what it was like to be a ranger in the nineties. Cause I think, and I'm, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm thinking of when I ask this question is, I think one post you had where you were like, it just existed to break you. And that was something, something to that effect that they were just, that the training, sure. that, that op tempo the train tempo was just so high and what was expected of you was just so
1: grueling. Well, it was a time of, and and this is one of the things that I like to get into whenever anybody asks me about Mogadishu stuff or uh, things immediately surrounding that, like it was a peacetime military. There was no sustained combat. Most of the people that joined the military back then were doing a four-year commitment. They were getting their GI bill and their college you know, paid for. And, and so there wasn't like this thought of being a career war fighter. Uh, you know, that, that really wasn't a thing. Yeah, And because we didn't have sustained combat, all we really had was the ability to try and figure out how to make things difficult to the point that it wasn't easy to maintain day to day. So physical fitness, as an example, back, back in 90, when I first joined the army and 91, when I got to the ranger battalion, there was no PT program. There was no physical training program. There was no... Hey, you should alternate days that you do these types of workouts. And here's good cardio. And this is how they do recovery. So, like, you basically got lined up at six thirty in the morning after first call formation and right face, and you went as fast as you could go for however long the dude who was leading the formation wanted to go. And it might be a run around Lawson Airfield, eight miles in fifty minutes. It might be. Uh, you know, a three-mile non-standard run, running up and down cardiac hill, buddy carrying, you know, your buddy and doing all kinds of stuff like that. Um, And if you didn't make the run, guess what? After lunch, we're going to have another formation and we're going to do remedial PT. So you, you were kind of operating in this constant state of broken, which your body never had recovery. And then on top of that, you're getting, you know, messed with all day long and hazed or corrected for not having, you know, your your boots shined properly and doing push-ups and low crawling up and down the hallway. So you're in this constant state of physical breakdown. And then if you're lucky, you know, you got to leave at six o'clock at night, go get a uniform starched at Ranger Joe's, maybe grab some dinner with some buddies and you know come back to the barracks to probably get fucked with more in the barracks by senior guys and, uh, you know, get to bed, wake up to do it all over again. And so that's why I say it it wasn't like there was any real thought put into it. It was just, you know, how sadistic and difficult of an environment can we create and only the strong survive, you know, um, strong mentally and physically.
0: And you say that was that was the hardest time that you ever had in the military?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, you know, jump into uh, you know, get up and do PT Monday morning, Helo cast into the Chattahoochee river, do a Zodiac movement all night, half of which the creeks were so low that we'd have to carry the Zodiacs, you know, for half a mile until the next water um, set up and do a live fire ambush, no helmet, no body yeah. armor, yeah. you know, claymores going off, do that, move, you know, through the swamps, find another patrol base. We would do that for like weeks at a time and uh, come in in the interim, you know, doing all the physical training and everything else. So it was, it was hands down yeah, the most difficult experience.
0: So considering Moog happened when you had been a ranger bat for what, about two-ish years? Yeah, about two and a half years. Did you get more WASTA when you came back after that, where people, did people fuck with you less? Were the, did the requirements, did you notice just your, the requirements from your peer group? Did that kind of change a little bit where they're like, hey, he's got a CIB now in an era where nobody has that? Um, yeah. So,
1: yeah. So, um, what did that mean? In the In the Rangers, you get there, generally speaking, you're a private. You've gone through basic training, AIT, infantry. Uh airborne school. And then at that time it was three weeks of the Ranger indoctrination program. So right. you showed up really not knowing anything. And so all the hazing was really intended to teach you things, you know, memorization of, you know, give me the five paragraphs of an operations order. I don't know it, Sergeant. Like then you're gonna be doing, you know, push-ups and all kinds of other stuff. Right. So you learned very quickly. Um, that was all in preparation to get you to go to Ranger School, which was right. a military leadership school. It doesn't teach you how to be a ranger. It just grades everybody on the same tactics. So that's kind of an even um, grading format. And it's just small unit tactics, you know, ambush, recon, raid type of thing. So once you get back from there, you're immediately promoted to an E4. And you're kind of like a team leader. So now you're starting to prepare the young privates that are coming in. You still have a little bit of, you know, E5s and E6s that are messing with you, but not really that much. You've kind of proven yourself at that point. So that whole, you know, generally speaking, is about 18 to 20 months of time in service there. That's kind of when that's all happening. So, um, you know, from there, like for me, as an example, you know, they're immediately trying to groom you to... Okay, we're going to send them to Jumpmaster School, and we're going to send them to right. Seer School, and all of these other specialty schools, so that you're more well rounded and and more more versatile as a leader. So, but that first eighteen to say thirty six months of just you know, yeah, am I going to make this? You know, am I going to be able to physically get through and endure? Am I mentally tough enough to? You get to a point where that all kind of clicks, and yeah. So this so, is really this album is really kind of an homage to that era of uncertainty and incredible challenges. And, you know, what was the soundtrack at the time? It was all of this music. And imagine, imagine being a Ranger private and low crawling down the hallway and smells like teen spirit is just raging in the barracks, you know, it's like, what's that feeling like? And all of this uncertainty that surrounds that and everything else. And the camaraderie, you know, killing your buddies and everything else. So it
0: sounds like once you were tabbed and once you had kind of made E4, that was more significant as far as relieving the pressure than, say, the Moog deployment per se. Yep.
1: And then there were privates that performed, you know, incredibly well in Mogadishu and they were just kind of left alone because, hey, this guy's been there and done it. Okay, And we don't we don't need to teach him how to go there and do it since he just went there and did it. And uh, there were a number of privates, I had a couple of privates in my squad that were in that boat. And they just kind of like, we can play the uh, rank game and I make right. you do push-ups as a joke more than anything. Um, but those guys all did incredibly well.
0: Did you have anybody deployed a Moog that wasn't tabbed? That was... Yeah, there was, yeah, yeah. Okay, a bunch of them still.
1: Wow. Yeah, I mean, I would say the easily 50 percent of the guys that were on the ground that day were non-ranger tap privates
0: holy crap wow
1: yeah how
0: many percentage wise if you had to guess? <laughs> i left you
1: I left your speechless there you really the did second, you really up. did yeah no, huh.
0: that's amazing I, I had no idea um and, and I'll, I'll I mean if, if you don't mind I'll just kind of share what that meant to me because I um when the movie came out I was kind of pissed off because I had felt um that incident almost got me into the military. I was, uh, in high school when that happened. And I remember it very well, uh, because I was a Marine Poolie at the time. And I remember the Marine recruiter came in and, um, you know, showed the pictures from Newsweek and he said, this is the army. This is what they did. They left their guys out there. And I was like, I don't think that's quite how that worked, man. But anyway, whatever. Um, but I just remember, um, I actually never really said this out loud, but you're for what it's worth. You're the guy that I'm going to say this to but, uh. I actually clipped out the pictures of the guys that died in Moog out of Newsweek. And I remember I taped it next to my desk in high school and I saw them cause I saw they were all two, three years older than me and um, a surprising amount from New Jersey, if I remember right. Um, and which yep. as a New Yorker meant something to me, I was like, Oh, a bunch of Jersey kids. And, um, and yeah. And I, and then I, I didn't join cause I was like, well, that's done now. Now we pulled out and I was so g up when I thought, Hey, this might be a thing, and this might be the impetus to go in. But um, you know, during the rest of the '90s, I felt like the country really forgot about Moog, and really, I mean, the movie obviously has kept it kind of has made it into a legendary event and has and has brought a lot of attention to it, and justifiably so. But I, I just remember that uh, that that person. That I just remember reading everything I could get my hands on about that incident, um, and I was surprised how just three years later nobody talked about it and it kind of was in this fallow period where that just wasn't a subject that was on anybody's mind and we were really in that holiday from history you know for the rest of the 90s and, and nobody was paying attention to it and i remember when the movie came out and i sat down with a friend of mine and you know both kind of young guys and looked at each other and we just kind of talked about the movie and what the movie meant uh and our recollections of of how that had impacted us but it was still 2000 and it was like oh well you're still not going to join the military because there's no war going on now and it's just an interesting historical highlight to think that uh yo know, but i mean I, I think it's not hyperbole to say that for a lot of us that then ended up joining later you know you guys were remote that was you guys were kind of um you know that was a legendary thing and that that made an impact, uh, certainly in my life from the time it happened, um, on out, I'm not really asking a question. I'm just
1: kind of reminiscing, but I hadn't thought about that stuff in a long time, but, um, I yeah, think, I think we, we went to, uh, you know, there was Bosnia that kind of happened soon thereafter, less, less than a year after Mogadishu, we were lined up in aircraft getting ready to go invade Haiti. Right. I remember Haiti. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that was it got it got called off literally at the last minute because Jimmy Carter and I want to say maybe Colin Powell were down talking with the leadership in Haiti. And so we li- the planes had taken off like we wow. were getting ready to take off and it was going to be game on. And uh, that was, I, I want to say, like September of ninety four. So I think that's right. I read Did you ever read Stan Goff's book? No. Does that I, ring any bells? Yeah. I mean, I you know, I know, about him. S- I know Stan, but right. I don't, I, I didn't read it. I don't read like military history stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I got you. <laughs> I got you.
1: Yeah. I, I, I
0: did. Of course I read it before I ever enlisted, but, um, but yeah, I, I read it about hating about his time there with an ODA, but anyway, so,
1: be that, be that uh, as a may. Yeah. Um, I'm working on a, a project now, and it's not in a place where I can talk enough about it because I have a couple of different um, options for how to get this thing out, and I'm kind of talking with different people how to how to do that. Um, but the the premise of it is, if you think about Black Hawk Down itself, the movie, the stories that make that up, wouldn't stand up in a court of law because 90% of it, if not more, is like hearsay. Huh. It's a handful of people that were able to talk to the author Mark Bowden. and yeah. a lot of the stories that they told were things like, I heard this guy did this. I heard, so I'm not going to get into the specifics or details, but. Um, But there are stories that I told me solely because I was the only one involved with the incident at a a specific moment that there are lies that I told that are in the movie. And, you know, there are reasons for why I did what I did. But what I'm trying to do with this project is talk about all of the things that really happened. And by that, I mean, not there I was on the corner killing motherfuckers. It's more like there was a squad leader who was a part of the assault force. And he had a couple of his privates and junior members engage what turned out to be the target building. And there were Delta guys on the roof of the building. And so this dude survived the battle lived with the trauma of the battle and almost immediately after returning back to Fort Benning, got sent packing. And how is this guy like he didn't have the network and the brotherhood because he was ostracized. How did that guy go on to, you know, get beyond that move beyond that? Like those are the stories that I want to be able to tell.
0: Man, that's a great story. And I you're touching on something that I, um, I'm i deeply interested in, which is what I think gets glossed over so often that we have heroes and we have goats that in the stories we tell so often in the military, but that there is that significant gray area of people trying to do the right thing and do the wrong thing. And people are human and mistakes are For- made and things like that.
1: Or there's Norm Hooten, who's a buddy of mine right. that, I serve, that I served with later in Delta. And he's the guy in the movie that this is right. my safety. He was never talked to about that. that. That wasn't something that he sat down with Mark Bowden and told the story or anything else. And, or the main ranger character, Matt Eversman, who went on the right. initial assault, um, he came back with the first convoy that exfilled some of the wounded and some some of the guys that had been killed and he never went back out into the city mm. he was made by hollywood yeah he was made into the main character so how do you deal with that when you go to a ranger reunion and you're you're the hollywood main character <sighs> right doesn't that yeah. cause you some grief and some guilt and some anxiety so it's those kinds of stories that I want to tell, not, not the there I was killing dudes, bad motherfucker, you know, et cetera. Um, It's the real, it's the real story. That's the real story. Yeah. The the movie is basically the narrative. Right. And the narrative, I think that, I think that the timeline of the movie is very accurate. And I think that some of the people that were talked to gave accurate portrayals of whatever it is, but um, You know, like I said, a large portion of that wouldn't stand up in a court of law due to it being the majority hearsay.
0: You don't have to. Answer I've, got this, ax- but I've got access. I've got access to Mark
1: good. Bowden as well, so that's another oh, thing that I, oh, well, yeah, I want to be able. A huge plus. Yeah. I want to be able to. I want to be able to talk to him too. So anyway, that's yeah. That's this new project, and, and like I said, it who knows where it's going to go? Um, but you know, we've got a uh, got some stuff in the works.
0: That's a very cool thing. I, I, I love that because I, I think you're right. There's tons of stories in there. And I think dynamics, that status dynamic that people sometimes even vets don't think about, you kind of forget that. Um, and I wanted to ask you because this is something you said right off the bat when you were talking about how the job never defined you. Did you ever find that that was at cross purposes with the military culture where your resume is on your uniform? Or, and sometimes even the lack of a resume on your uniform is even more of a resume than if you had a resume on your uniform, you know, where status means so much based on those superficialities, which are earned. I mean, not detracting from, you know, people that are like yourself that are tabbed and badged, you know, in every way imaginable. But the culture certainly rewards that and sometimes can gloss over the nuances of what it took to get those or compromises that were made or mistakes that were made or not the inability to live up to those sometimes. Um, Did you ever find that to be a cross purposes, you know, with yourself where you're like, eh, this is, this is kind of dragging me backwards or would you find a way to surf that wave?
1: No, I think, um, you know, at Delta, there, there is no rank on the uniform. There is no specialty badges and you're literally graded, you know, judged, whatever you want to call it, respected based on what you're doing right now. So it doesn't matter what you did when you were in Grenada or Panama or Mogadishu, it's what are you doing right now and how well are you doing it? So I feel like there are probably some places where maybe that exists. Um, but then that also gets into the whole can of worms of like military award system and how right, right, that right. is right. And, and everything else. So it, to me, that's, it, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be fixed. And, uh, you know, I don't think for the guys, I don't think that that stuff really matters much.
0: It's funny that, um, Moog and by funny, I mean, it's just interesting to me as a observer that it seems like Moog remains kind of prominent in your mind, considering that, you know, you had nine, eight, nine, 10 more years of, time after 9-11 of combat deployments and all the rest of it, but Moog still seems to have a special place in your focus. Am I misreading that or is that right?
1: No, it's it's one of the things that I like about it is that it's easy for me to talk about. There are no legalities of oh, yeah. sharing, sharing things that I don't know, you know, if it's okay to talk about this or that or locations or other things. So for me, the only reason that it's, you know, I guess as prominent as it is, mainly has to do with the fact that it's just a safe topic because I was a mm. ranger that served there and I can talk about the other units that served there. And oh by the way, I served in another unit for 12 years. So you know I, I can talk right. about that. That there's there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um so so for me it's a as funny as this sounds Mogadishu is a safe space.
0: Yeah. yeah. Safe
1: place. <laughs> um at the same time I can say without a doubt that, you know, of all the additional combat uh, gunfights, you know, things like that, that I was involved in, I mean, nothing even came close. No, I mean, not even close. Really? Um, and no. and so I think in, in part of it's a situation, part of it's based on equipment. Mm. Um, you know, I try and explain to people like we didn't have radios, you know, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know for the entire duration of the battle, kind of what was going on from one minute to the next, because we didn't have a communication. Are you going to get together the the team leaders in the middle of the street to disseminate information for them to put out to their privates? Like right. it doesn't right. work that way. So I'm not faulting anybody. We didn't have the armored vehicles to be able to even ex- extricate ourselves from the target building. Um, you know, you could just name one thing after another. Uh, we didn't have proper night vision. We didn't have lasers. We didn't have all the things that we have. To our advantage, you know, today, yeah, and uh, you know, so it's just it's a different battle, and you know, it's of the time it's it's still you know kind of of the Vietnam era of war, <laughs> right. right? In terms of capability, um, there are a lot of people that are very bitter about, uh, well, we didn't have AC-130 gunships to support us, and we didn't have this, and okay, however um probably the only reason the president could even make this thing happen was to have it be something that he could kind of slide under the radar right because we weren't in a situation where the military could just be hey let's just go do offensive yeah. operations in Mogadishu, yeah. somalia you know yeah um so so yeah it would have been a completely different battle had we had some of those things um, at the same time it probably wouldn't have happened had we had some of those other things. So maybe the whole deployment would have never happened. You can't have it both ways. Right. Why did you stay in? Why didn't you get out? Um, Let's see. For me, I guess the first part of that is that I really didn't have a whole lot of other options. You know, Um, I was, I was excelling in the military and was already had my sights set on, the next job that I took, which was in the recon detachment at the Rangers. And that was a little more specialized and you got to go to military freefall school and scuba school, and you got paid better. And it was more of a first name basis kind of thing and less Sergeant this. And, and so part of me was, I got to the Rangers. It wasn't what I expected it to be. And, you know, I probably had some, you know, misconceptions about what I thought it was going to be. But that probably had to do with maybe some Vietnam, Rangers in Vietnam books that I had read, you know, as maybe a 12 or 13-year-old. So, What was that? What were the
0: misconceptions? What did you think it was going to be?
1: um, I kind of thought that it was going to be more like I got trained and then I showed up and then I was a part of the team and we would Uh, be out doing more operational type of stuff. And, you know, it just ended up being a little more left, right, left, right army, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. kind of thing than I guess what I thought it was going to be. And, and that's okay. Um, The same thing happened to me when I got to Delta, you know, I, I had visions of, uh, you know, skiing through the, through the Alps, you know, and assault this little cabin in the middle of nowhere, where this mad scientist is cooking up, you know, some kind of biological weapon and we assault the cabin and then fly out on some foreign helicopter, you know, like
0: seems completely reasonable. Yeah. yeah, I mean,
1: but I, I kind of like, that's where my mind was. I thought that we were going to be doing more of that type of thing. And, uh, you know, anyway, so staying in part of it was, I was excelling and I feel like I didn't really scratch the itch of the thing that I thought, Mm. um, my intent in joining was to go to Delta. I didn't understand that I had to do something before that. Right. So the recruiter was like, yeah, you can, you know, do something else like special forces. And I said, okay, well, I'll do that. He said, "Well, you can't do that either. You got to be something before that, like a ranger. And that's kind of how it started. So I think, you know, from the beginning, I wanted to serve in the elite unit and, and at least make it there and know that I gave it my shot. In 1990,
0: what was your information source for knowing about Delta? Was it Chuck Norris? I mean, where was this coming from? That you it was that's probably what you just, to do?
1: It was probably just the name recognition of the movie. Yeah. Wow, um, that, that, had, that was literally what you
0: were going on. That was that was well, enough to get you into the recruiter's office.
1: I had in in 1989, December of 89, there were like three things that happened that were kind of the trifecta that led me to the service. One, the the band that I was playing with at the time. And it spent probably three years trying to build, to get out, do good and great stuff, like all fell apart. Mm. So it was kind of like, what do I do now? Uh, a buddy of mine that had joined the Air Force, he was an EOD guy, God. was home on vacation and probably his Christmas exodus or something. And he said, these guys came at the end of basic training to recruit for a special unit that jumps in behind enemy lines, and rescues down pilots. And I was like, wow. So the band fell apart. That sounds kind of cool. And then the invasion of Panama happened. And Mm -hmm. there was just a little bit of coverage about, you know, President Bush had sent in uh, the U.S. Army Airborne Rangers on an operation called Just Cause. You know, it was like, hell yeah. So that, that led me to the Air Force recruiter who blew smoke up my ass for the better part of like two or three months. And then one day was leaving the Air Force recruiters, and the Army guy pulled me into his office and said, "What's going on, man? I see you here like every week. W- what's the deal?" And I said, "Well, that guy won't guarantee me anything. Like, I just want a contract that, like, I guarantees me the option to try. I right. understand that you can't guarantee my success, but." Right. And he said, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I said, "I don't know, like Delta Force." And that's how the conversation started.
0: Wow, wow, and then. Once you got to Delta, did you think, was there any sense of satisfaction or did that list last like a microsecond and then you were just, you know, task saturated and kind of getting into the flow of it? Or what did that mean
1: to you? I get asked that a lot by, you know, the young kids that are either thinking about the service or, you know, they're really intrigued by, wow, it it must have been, uh, you know, such a huge accomplishment to know that you had made it. And I, I try and use the NFL as an analogy mm. for tier one military, because I feel like they're very much the same thing. It takes a long time to go from you being a little kid in the backyard, throwing the football to playing peewee football, to playing rec league, to playing high school ball, to playing college ball. Like you've got to perform at every level or you're not going on to the next. So I realized very quickly, even when I finished Delta Selection physically, that the next part of it was, well, they've got a whole psychological component to this selection course too. It's not just, can you physically do the things that you have to do to to pass? And that kind of opened the door to, okay, welcome, you're selected. Now you're going to go through a year-long training course that has a, you know, residual, uh, attrition rate of, you know, I don't know, pretty high. So just because you're with this group of people that performed physically and meet all of our requirements psychologically, um, you know, there's still a very likely, you know, high probability that you're going to wash out of this program. So right. it's one thing to make it to the NFL. And this is the analogy that I like to use with the kids. So there are thousands of guys a year that go to the NFL how many of those do we still know their name or even right. know their name? Right. In five years, in 10 years, in 12 years, whatever it might be. So there's a difference between making it and being a Deion Sanders, or mm-hmm. you know, pick pick your player. But that's that's kind of what it's like to be there long term and to be a long-term operational member of that unit.
0: I've heard that um or read, I think. Uh, that you're kind of considered a rookie for your first seven years at the unit. Is that a ballpark kind of true? Like,
1: yeah, I so don't, like- I don't, it's similar to the Rangers. Like you may go and you may perform and do something that people are like, Oh man, that guy's just a performer. Like he's solid. And yeah. okay. very quickly you're accepted into the tribe and, and, uh, and everything's good. I think the misnomer about Delta is that people are being dropped all the time for performance. And in actuality, probably more of the extracurricular behaviors and activities are what get guys in trouble. And, you know, you see the same thing in the NFL. It takes extreme personalities to perform at that type of level. And, you know, you're working basically directly for the president of the United States. So, you know, in a moment's notice, you can be training up and getting ready and going and doing something that. You can't even talk about. Nobody knows about. Might even happen. Might not happen. All that type of stuff. You have to be the most physically fit. You don't want to be the weak link. You have to be a top level shooter. You know, competitive, almost at the professional level of shooting. Um, all of these things are going on, and psychologically, be able to you know kind of maintain and be good with all of that. And uh, so, I don't. I don't think that there's a status or time put on it. I think you get to a point where. Once you're performing at that level, it's kind of second nature. And I think you'll see guys like, you know, the Deion Sanders of the NFL that are like, once they get there, they're just there. And then yeah. they're able to kind of be a little more, more uh, boisterous and, right. you know, talky right. and everything else. So that, that comes out too elsewhere, you know?
0: Right. So during all this time, even in Ranger bat, I mean, as you say, you're getting smoked all the time. You go to Ranger Recon, which is grueling in its own way, and uh, and then CAG and Delta. And where's music in all this? Where do you have time um, for music? Where, does it, is it just on hiatus? I mean, where is no, it? Put it's, in?
1: it's always there. So I think all my stuff got sold, and I sold it all off when I joined the military. And then I want to say it feels like when I think back on the actual time frame. Um, it feels like it was two years, but it wasn't. It was actually only about six months from the time that I you know, got to the oh. Rangers to the next thing happened. So I was out at a bar with uh, some buddies, and I, I can't remember exactly where it was or, or you know, the exact month or time. I, it w- had to have been in 1991. And I don't know whether it was my buddies calling me out or whether it was they believed me. And So anyway, I'm, I'm wrecked at a bar. And next thing I know, I hear the band calling, you know, hey, where's Brad? Brad, come up to the stage. So I come up to the stage and the lead singer's like, yo, dude, we heard, you know, you've always just wanted to, you know, play music, like almost like a make a wish kind of thing. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, dude, let's let's do it. So we uh, a guy gave me a guitar. We uh, talked for a minute or two, kind of figuring out what songs we knew that we could play. And uh, I banged out, you know, rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. And by the end of it, people were like coming up, shaking my hand, like, dude, that was badass, you know? And so yeah. that to some degree kind of reunited, you know, re-engaged the spark. And then I went out and bought some amps and bought some guitars. And at that time was, you know, super into like chili peppers and, you know, STP and stuff like that. And so it was always there, but I was busy, yeah. um, would, would play at home. And things along those lines. And and all the way through until about 2007. And in 2007, I went out. Um, I decided that I was going to get back into it. I had seen Van Halen on their reunion tour, the first wow. tour with David, with David Lee Roth. I, I saw yeah. that, I think, like three or four shows of that tour. And it affected me in such a way that I was like, I went out and bought this uh, Eddie Van Halen art series guitar and, you know, got a nice martial amp and everything else. And I was like, I'm going to get my chops together, just getting back into the basics, like Van Halen riffs and licks and, you know, mimicking and imitating and just getting my hands back, you know, used used to doing the whole thing. Sorry, uh, when,
0: when was the last time that you'd really been playing prior to that? Had it been like a decade? Like really? it been like, yeah, you know? it had been yeah, okay.
1: easily, you know, 12, 15 years or so. Wow. But I mean, wow. when I was playing, it just wasn't at that kind of level. So anyway, right. ended up joining a band in Fayetteville and quickly became kind of like the band in Fayetteville. And we opened for all the national acts that came through in Fayetteville, you know, Evans Blue, Cracker, uh, Vanilla Ice, like, you know, one after the other kind of thing. So wait, so you were <laughs> hold
0: on. <laughs> how in God's name did you fit that into your schedule?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, good luck, you know, but it was one of those things where you're playing mostly a Saturday show kind of thing. So it was a weekend and, you know, not, not that big of a deal. Did, uh, was there ever a
0: thought that maybe you were going to get too exposed or you're just becoming too famous considering the unit you were in where it's like, maybe it's too much attention on you.
1: No, I didn't. I didn't use my full name. And, uh, It got to the point, you know, where they would have like live, you know, Rock 103 would be there and they would be talking to us and stuff like that. And we were having fun with other bands on the radio and things like that, but I never used my full name. So it wasn't something where anybody could really track me down or trace it or anything else. And for all intents and purposes, like I don't think most people even knew that I was in the military at that time. Oh, really? Just okay. because of you know, I had relaxed grooming standards anyway, sure. so sure, I definitely didn't look like you know, uh, commando when I showed up to to play. And uh,
0: so, what did that mean for you then? When you're opening up for these acts, did it did it give you confidence that there was something here that you're? Or what, what did it mean to you, just emotionally? What did it mean to you? with any professional aspirations? Um, or was it just like, Oh, this is fun. I'm just
1: taking it in the moment. I think it was more just a fun type of thing. So okay. I, I don't think that I was trying and I, I couldn't at that time I was still in the military. So I had, you know, a handful of years that I had to finish up and and everything else. So it wasn't like, Oh, I can go on tour. Or, oh, I can go, you know, right. spend a couple of weeks in LA recording or something along those lines. Um, It was just a ton of fun. And I feel like it was the best that I could do at the time. And, and that was totally satisfying because I, you know, we were definitely having fun with it and, you know, getting to play good shows and, and things like that. So no, no regrets.
0: What did it mean um, for your, trying to think of the best way to phrase this for your music appreciation, did it uh, being in the military, did it mean that kind of. Your frame of references were frozen to when you were last a civilian. It's like yeah, kind of like I'll see I hear the Chili Peppers thing here and there. Got a couple of things because I was getting smoked and there was music playing in the hallways. But your but anytime in two even in two thousand seven, your musical frame of reference is going to go back to those influential earlier years more than be influenced by what's going on at that point in the music culture.
1: No, it was still even like 2007 timeframe, that stuff. So I think we, I did that for about three years, Mm -hmm. Think about 2008, nine and 10. Um, It was very much, you know, Papa Roach and Nickelback type of, you know, it was original music and we would throw in, if we were opening for someone that was a heavier act, we would throw in some heavier covers. Mm. Or if it was somebody lighter, like Cracker, we would throw in some, you know, more chill kind of cover tunes um but yeah it was it was still very relevant and current to what was happening in you know contemporary rock music of uh of the late 2000s
0: do you currently or did you then uh start studying other guitarists or is there do you get any value from kind of looking at somebody and going oh yeah I see what they do here I like their I don't know fretwork here or something like is there any sense of that? Is that something that you study? Is that something you kind of suss out or is it just kind of, ah, this is what I like?
1: No, I I think that there are some things that are just kind of common to a lot of music. Like if one of the things it's not to sound like another, uh, to sound like another artist. Sure. Um, but you can look at songs that are popular and you can say, what do they have in common? generally speaking they've got like this big chorus you know this big kind of open chorus so if if you listen to a lot of the chorus stuff you know and you haven't heard the second album yet but the chords are just kind of big open ringing chords Mm. it's not there's not a ton of stuff to it um and then there's like some sort of hook to the guitar whether it's you know a riff that the guitar plays or something like that um the first song on this second album is a tune called Hammer, at least that's what it's called right now. And it it does this thing where it kind of ramps up. So it goes from the intro into the verse. And then it just kind of keeps stepping up. And the energy level just kind of keeps stepping up, which I've never been able to kind of do before. It was always like, I eh, make it step up. And then yeah, it kind yeah, of yeah. steps up. And um, and those are like dynamic changes, but So I don't necessarily look at a song and go, I want to write a song that's just like this or something like that. It's, it's more like there are elements to the things that I like, you know, Elton John being one of those, you know, um, you asked, you asked very early on about, you know, I tend to, these guys are like songwriters, but singers. And the one thing that's in common with all of them is these big choruses, you know, um, big hooky choruses and that's kind of true of any good song there's also like a bpm right beats per minute per song mm-hmm. like there are more hit songs that like 120 to 130 beats per minute than any other song like right so if you're if you're in this zone you're kind of in that right it's like a normal kind of upbeat tempo yeah. that's yeah. that's the thing so
0: <sighs> prelude on the first album Is that going to get extended? Did I see a post that says that you're going to extend that into a full-length song?
1: No. So that actually was a full-length song. It was a uh, four-minute and 30-second song. And we didn't get... Well, actually, we had lyrics done for it. It's one of the ones that I talked about earlier where we just kind of drug it over the finish line. And the intent... it, it, It gets heavier. And it does a bunch of other stuff. And then it kind of wraps up with kind of similar to the intro. Um, When we laid the vocal for it, the producer was like, there's something familiar about this. And I can't put my finger on it. And he says, uh, ah, it's his Pearl Jam song. And so he pulled it up and we listened to them. And we just thought it's kind of the vocal melody is similar enough But there's also nothing else that really fits. So we spent, you know, probably eight days in the studio trying to retweak the vocal to something else. We couldn't get it there. I love that song enough as it was. And I said, what if we do this like shortened version, instrumental only? And so we took a bunch of the stuff that Jason had kind of some of the like whale type sounds that Mm -hmm. are in there. Yeah. Yeah. And we had those. I I had the guy that was doing the mixing kind of repeat those throughout, so they be kind of came the melody, and we just wanted it to be a short, sweet type of almost like Prelude, War, Silence, and Light. Those were like almost a trilogy of songs, mm-hmm. which is you know the peace beforehand, the chaos of the actual war act itself, and then kind of the aftermath. Um, and that wasn't intentional going in; it just kind of turned into just that. Happened. Silence and
0: Light is a beautiful song. I really, every time I listen to that, um, I I hear something else in it. What did, did you, uh, did you and Fred work on the lyrics together? Was that mostly him? What was the, what was the origin story of those lyrics and how those came about?
1: So interesting. I, um, I don't think that I sent electronic versions of that out to everybody. Um, You hear in that song, there's like a crickets kind of nighttime sound. Okay. Um, We played it in the studio, not recording, but in our rehearsal studio, we played it for the first time and it built and built and built and built. And Jason had used an effect that was a delay effect. And during the time that it built, it turned into a sound that sounded almost like crickets and we were like, man, this just—it gives us this like mood of, you know, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then it kind of releases, and it's almost like an orgasmic release where it's like, ah, finally we're getting to the thing. Um, that was an element that I wanted to do. So we were talking about this before. Uh, the song "Love Hate Love" by Allison Chains. Mm. Okay, it takes for ever to get to the ending and by the time he gets into that like that's the very end of the song and it really takes five minutes to get there and so i wanted to do this song that built and built and built and then finally at the end kind of does this release and uh that's where it came from so fred as we were doing this build thing and uh kind of letting it just get more powerful i think we'll all say the same thing. Like I had goosebumps playing this song for the very first time. It was just like, it was, there was so much energy in the room. And, you know, so he was weaving in these, you know, "Ah," you know, these calls and things like that. And it was just, it was a powerful moment. And that's, that to me is like creating art. That was something that, you know, to try and replicate that and capture it in the studio is a, is a tough thing. But anyway, that's where it came from. And, you know, the only thing that I really told Fred was to me, this is a song that's about contemplation. It's about, you know, Uh thinking about putting that gun in your mouth and, and then kind of breaking beyond that. And that's, Uh that's really what the song is about.
0: Interesting. Okay. Wow. I really misread that. (laughs) <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, I okay. So I'll 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 tell you where where I thought it was, um, and and kind of just where it hit me is I thought it was almost a selection song. It was almost like you know you're walking into darkness. Fear's going to guide the way. Fear's going to clear everything out of the way. I'm soaked. I'm wet on the outside, but my nerves are warming my soul. Hey, I'm still here. I'm still here. Now just breathe, embrace it. Sounds and light, sounds and light. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm in this moment. I'm still standing. All this shit that's getting thrown at me, I'm still standing. That that was me. Clearly, I I missed the boat on that one. So I'm no music. Yeah, I, um, I, uh,
1: you you probably know the lyrics better than I do.
0: <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I actually try. I actually before the show, I wrote them down because I was like, uh, because I actually wanted to ask you about them, and I was like, there's no way I'm gonna like be able to come up with this just off the top of my head. So I actually wrote them down. So I'm totally cheating, but uh, yeah, anyway, that's what, that's what, that is what it it kind of hit me as, but uh, dude, that's,
1: it's a great song. I think that's the, uh, the cool thing about art, you know, is uh, the interpretations of something and, you know, even the, even the band name silence and light, it was meant to be something that like, it can mean something different to you than it means to me and in that regard there is no right or wrong it, it's when you can relate to something or you feel something in music or a piece of art or literature whatever it might be i i think to me that's like i don't know that's the greatest compliment that probably somebody could pay me in terms of that is to say oh man it hit me this way or this is the way i read it there's no right or wrong answer you know sure sure the fact the fact that it's doing something is uh is better than <laughs> than doing nothing well, that was Dylan,
0: right? Didn't Dylan say the greatest thing an artist can do is inspire somebody? And once you've sure. done that, like that's kind of it, right? It's like that's my gift. That's what I gave right there. It certainly yeah. does that. It's 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 a great album, man. I mean, it's funny because I I really didn't. Um, it's been a while since I've done. I was never an Allison Chains kind of guy. Like I liked it. I liked STP and all that stuff. I was really more into the Bay Area
1: thrash funk, you know, Primus, oh,
0: psychophonkopus. I love that stuff. Um, here. really okay badass yeah so yeah. that
1: that's kind of the weird thing is that you know um if you even look at like apple music it'll relate us to tool yeah you know so it'll be like other artists like this tool. right and i'm like coolest compliment ever um you know because i don't i don't feel like there's a whole lot of tool there yeah but right right it, it's kind of that that dark vibe so I never into like we didn't start this thing out to say, let's write grunge music, contemporary grunge music. Right. Like the, right. it definitely didn't start at that. So that's what I mean. When you start something, like here's here's the impetus for this song or whatever it might be. When everybody else touches it and adds their piece and it turns into a completely different animal, sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. And it, you know, it's too far away from where it started that I don't like it or it just kind of. So there was no intent uh, with any of the music to, to be one thing or another. It was just kind of like, hey, here's some songs. Let's see where they go. And then from that, we kind of found our sound. So the first album, if it did anything, even though we limped it across the finish line, it kind of defined who we are, you know, what our sound is what our style is. Yeah. And uh, that was as much of a win as you're releasing the album itself. Like, are who you? are we? What are we? What do we sound like? A hundred percent.
0: Are you going to work? Are you working with Josh Goodwin on the second album? Is he still your producer?
1: He's going to do some mixing. And I don't think, you know, if you look at any of his uh, social media stuff, uh, yeah, he doesn't have a couple of weeks to cut away and just go hang with us in the studio and do all that as much as we'd like it to. Um, I also think Josh, you know, I won't take away any of his talents or skills. I don't, I don't think that hard rock is his wheelhouse necessarily. And so you end up with a little bit different flavor. And even he, he did the, that, you know, basically the engineering and the producing and kind of tweaking little things here and there and improve them and made things better. Um, but I, I think that we're better suited to do something like we're getting ready to do in North Carolina, with a guy who did uh Dinosaur Jr and Sonic oh, yeah. Youth and stuff oh, like wow. that. So huh. so I think um Velvet Re- he did some Velvet Revolver stuff and and things like that. So I I feel like that's probably better and at the same time recognizing that Josh is a super bu- busy and talented guy um you know I, I I want him to do a remix on a couple you know at least a song. So you've got like Goodwin mix and then standard uh, mix or something like that, just to get a different flavor of, you know, what the mix really does to a song. He posted something the other day. It was like um basically the music that he's touched this year. And I mean, 2021, not 2022, um, 894 million streams. Well, I mean, yeah. Cause he's doing what Bieber, Celine Dion, yeah.
0: Maroon 5. Like it's Bad, insane.
1: Bad Bunny. Yeah. A whole bunch of dudes. There's a um, a current pop song that has the Elton John kind of lyric through it, and I think it's gonna be. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But it's a pop song. I hear it on commercials. Like that's he did yeah. that tune. Wow. Um, Jesus. Yeah, he's just he's all over the place. So, um, yeah, he he felt really badly about. Uh, don't think I'm gonna be able to do all this, but at the same time, I think we're actually in a better place. If anything. Uh, the cost of recording an album in LA mm-hmm. versus the cost of recording an album almost anywhere else in the world is is night and day. So, so let's, anything... yeah, let's talk
0: about that for a second. I mean, so I mean, God bless. I mean, you guys are, you know, donating all these profits. You're supporting these charities. How the hell are you paying for all this? Like, I mean, that that's, you know, I mean, are you really? Wow. Holy shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my contribution aside from writing the music and everything else is like I'm donating the proceeds and funds, you know, to, uh, to be able to pay for it all and fund it. Um, and that's, hold on. I got a bunch of text blowing up here. No, you're good. Um, yeah, like I said, I didn't want to ask people for money. There was a discussion at one point about like doing a go fund me, you know, and it's like, I don't, I, I don't want to ask people for something and then have to work some whole deal with like, if you, you know, right, contributed right. to the GoFundMe, you get this or right. you get that. It's kind of like, we'll pay for it. We'll get it out there. If, if people want to contribute to the band and help us try and even come close to offsetting costs, um, merchandise is going to be the way for them to do that. Okay. So if they buy a t-shirt for 22 bucks. Um, you know, we're, we're getting hundred percent of those profits and that basically pays for our travel and gas just to be able to get together and, uh, and rehearsal space, time and fees and everything else. But so elephant in the room, why not just, why not just be a for-profit
0: band and go, okay, Hey, look, you know, I got to fix my own oxygen mask before I can fix it onto the charity next to me, you know, like, and, and have the band be able to pay for itself and, you know, treat it like you would any other band?
1: Um, yeah, at some point we may get to that point where I don't think it would ever be a completely for-profit thing. I think we would still contribute a pro, you know, a certain percentage of proceeds, you know, to something. Um, I mean, we couldn't even come close. You, you have to really stream a lot to earn royalties that are going to be lucrative in any way, shape or form. Okay. Um, people generally speaking and you know, I'm guilty of the same thing. Uh, people generally don't buy stuff. They stream it and streaming pays at a completely different royalty rate than if you were to buy a song on iTunes or buy the album on iTunes. So if, if an album sells for 999 on on iTunes, um, Apple Music takes about thirty cents off each song, so you end up making about six dollars on it. But if you're streaming, unless you're in the millions of streams, it really is not lucrative. Wow. Most bands make money on touring, merchandise, uh, things like that. That's that's where the real money is coming from. Got you.
0: I mean, so, that, I think that's good for people to know the economics involved because um, for you guys to be doing what you're doing is great and it's noble. But I think and I'm saying this as a fan, people would want more too. So whatever sure. it takes to enable the life of the band, I, I think people would be a fan of and support that they know, you know, how the sausage is made, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, if it's, if it's, you know, like I said, if you, if you buy a CD on Amazon for $9.99, we get three ninety nine dollars of that. So, yeah, you know, shit. again, it's like, if, if you want to yeah. contribute to these organizations that we're contributing to, um, the best way to do that is to buy something. We also didn't want it to be something that you can only buy it. We wanted to give people access to the music, uh, to put your stuff on iTunes. You have to agree to Apple music so people can get it for free anyway. And we thought, well, why not get it all over the place? Yeah. And then you realize that once it goes through the aggregator, which is like what turns a song into a UPC code that you can buy once it gets to that point. Um, you kind of have to sign up to be on all of these different platforms. You kind of pick and choose, but it's like 57 different platforms that your stuff is going out on. So I'd rather have that than no, we sell a CD and I'm going to mail it out to you from my house or something that like, you know, that it just doesn't get the reach.
0: Well, I imagine COVID really screwed you guys also, right? Because without being able to release that second album right away and having some lag time between albums, Probably doesn't help, especially when you can't tour because of COVID as well, right?
1: Right, right, exactly. So it's it's not one of those things where it hasn't affected us. It's not going to affect us, and since we're you know kind of footing the bill for the whole thing anyway, um you know, not really a huge big deal. What I'm trying to do is like get the timing of everything all together, so that you know when album two comes out, we have a publicist on board now. Same publicist as Ozzy, um, oh. and yeah, so I. Th- think that we're going to definitely see a lot more traction but we want when a story drops we want to have new merchandise so when people go they see something like oh that's cool i may not like that but i can buy this um and so covid did give us the time to kind of get all that stuff lined up and ready to go we've already got the artwork for the album done um you know already have i think three or four different t-shirts designs that are in various states of Completion and things like that. So is that is that Matt Render? Is he doing all that stuff? No, he did. He oh. did one. was more okay. like a collab, a collaborative thing. Okay, that he did, and all the proceeds of that went to the same uh, charitable organizations that we are already contributing to. So,
0: at um, first, all, I think that's great to say, and I hope everybody takes that to heart uh, and understands that you know nothing is for free, and and to support those that are, are that you like is important because. Yeah, the economics are, are always difficult in the arts. To that point, though, um, I want to throw out just something that I've kind of felt, and this is kind of a self-serving uh, hypothesis, but I want to bounce it off you. What do you think um, about the value of art per, like writ large, whether it's visual art, painting, music, NFTs, Acting, whatever
1: NFTs. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, <laughs> that's where um, it's
0: at, man. Yeah, I'll tell you, it really is, right? Yeah, there's there's the one piece of art that's really guaranteed to make you money in in any format right now. Um, but what's the value of art to a to somebody who has been engaged in life and death business, as you said, first responders, veterans, and all that, as a as a natural evolution in their life. And what I, this is my point of view that if you've spent time in a life or death business, it's not a 180 degree turn. It's not a about face. It's not even a right turn. It's actually, it can be a natural evolution into the arts because it kind of encapsulates your entire career in the life and death professions. It's a great way to encapsulate and sum it up and kind of be your own poet laureate of your own experiences and be able to therapeutically deal with them, but also- have those experiences, have the second and third order effects of helping everyone that didn't have those experiences, understand them more, value them more. I mean, am I making sense? Is that is that yeah, a fair yeah, yeah. summation of, of a worthwhile career in, in the life yeah. and death business?
1: Absolutely. And if if, like I said, if there's any value to the whole project, it's the fact that it's connected with as many people that it's connected with. And it, it far exceeded my expectations. You know, I, I feel like I set a very realistic and achievable goal. You know, If I can get 5,000 people behind this and you know, download it, stream it, whatever, then that would be a win. And we're in the hundreds of thousands of yeah. downloads and streams and everything else. So it, it's gone way above and beyond. And I feel like we really have something good. We've got a good story to tell. So getting a publicist involved, I mean, literally yeah. had to like fight off publicists, eight of them. You know, it was kind of like I could choose which one I wanted to use because they all wanted to be able to tell the story. And I, uh, I, thought, I thought that yeah. was pretty cool. So, yeah, I feel like there's good stuff coming. Um, great music coming. It's by far <laughs> better, all around, more mature. Um, we've had time to really kind of get into the weeds on all the songs and make them as good as we could possibly make them. And we don't have the same constraints that we had last go around. So we're psyched to kind of get the ball going, you know, get the ball rolling and get out and, uh, get after it.
0: When does it drop? When does the new album drop?
1: Uh, so it should be late summer. I'm going to say late okay. summer, early fall. Maybe, maybe we'll time it with some significant date or something like that, but. Oh, that'd be cool.
0: Yeah. 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 Okay, got. I've got about
1: listen, two, two percent you're battery. You're left good.
0: In. Listen, this is great, man. I, I so appreciate this Brad. Um, I had a blast. I, I, I could have done this for another four hours. Um, your battery <laughs> cap, but, but this was a real <laughs> blast. Um, listen, um, keep us in the loop. Uh, we'll talk, but this has been a great time and, um, can't wait to have you back on the show. Maybe when the next album drops.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. And thanks for your platform and giving guys like me a place to, uh, talk about what they're doing and everything else. So uh, I appreciate all that you're doing and having me on and everything else, man. Thank you.
0: And that was the savage wonder of Brad Thomas. You've been listening to savage wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists, and it is produced by the veterans repertory theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. All the opinions expressed. I say this every week, and I don't think we've ever had some anything too controversial, but I'm just going to say it anyway. All the opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. As always, you can check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org. If you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, go ahead and subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. The best way to do that is to go to vetrep.org. Again, that's V-E-T-R-E-P. Dot org and go to the now playing tab you hit that scroll down you will see the literary blog you click on it it'll give you all the options to subscribe for free to read all the fiction poetry and creative nonfiction fiction the veterans are writing that you can handle we usually send you one email a day not usually we do we don't spam you but every morning you'll get a little piece of veteran literature in your inbox and um sometimes we'll put in like a little bit of an ad telling you what we're doing, what we're up to just so you can keep tabs on our activities. But uh, we try to make it as user friendly and unobtrusive as possible. And um, it's been fun. It's been fun. And the feedback's been great, which reminds me if you're subscribed to this podcast, which you probably are since you're listening to it right now, and you'd like to give us feedback, we'd love to get it. But if you're on iTunes, if you could do us a huge favor and attach it to a five-star review, that would just be dynamite. Now, you can say whatever you want to us in the review. You can give us questions, comments, snyder remarks, constructive criticism, whatever you want to say. But if you just put five stars and attach that to whatever it is you're telling us, that would be dynamite. That's not, of course, the only place you can give us feedback. You can always uh, find us on Twitter at Vet Rep Theater or on Instagram at Vet Rep Theater or on Facebook at Veterans Repertory Theater. And I know nobody knows how to spell repertory, so I'll spell it. It's Veterans, R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, theater, and that's E-R, not R-E, because we're American and not British. So any of those platforms are a great place to reach out to us. Uh, Send us your questions, comments, night remarks, constructive criticism. We love to hear all of it. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog, and you are a veteran, which you have to be to submit us, The work to us. Um, You have to be a veteran or you have to be an immediate family member of a veteran. Uh, In that case, again, go to vetrep.org, go to our submissions tab, and you will have all the options right there staring in front of you in various drop-down menus to be able to send us whatever it is you want to send us. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.